Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 361. Today's big Bible question, what is the greatest investment in history? Well, hello, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. We are living right now in a land in a world of frayed nerves, fear, arguments born out of impatience and anxiety about the future right now. Today, in the midst of every storm that is blowing around you and in you and through you and your family and friends, remember that the angel of the Lord said that great peace would come through the birth of Jesus to those who are favored by the Father. And if you are a follower of Jesus by faith, then you are in the number of the favored, so take joy and comfort in that. Welcome aboard to new listeners from Gaius, Ecuador, parts unknown in Russia, Himakal Pradesh, India, Tucson, Arizona, Las Vegas, and Buffalo, New York. Today we're back to discussing one of my absolute favorite people in the Bible, Mary of Bethany, sister of Martha, brother of Lazarus, and friend of Jesus. I believe it's very significant that a few short days before his crucifixion, Jesus came to see his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Most of us, with the fa- when we are faced with the end of our time on the earth, would probably want to see people who were most special to us. That group for Jesus apparently includes his disciples and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and maybe not many people beyond that, though we could quite possibly include his immediate family in that number because his mother Mary was at his crucifixion. Although it's interesting, his brothers are not mentioned as being there, nor his father, but probably because Joseph died at some point before the ministry of Jesus because he's never mentioned after the childhood of Jesus, But we don't know any of that for sure, of course. So Jesus goes to dinner at his friend's house, Simon the leper. Martha is serving them, which is extremely important. Serving is a good thing. It's a key to greatness, says Jesus. But Mary goes beyond even that greatness, expressing her extravagant devotion in a physical, affectionate, and an extremely costly way. This display of affection and love is absolutely flabbergasting to the people in attendance and shocks some of them. So let's read our passage in John and then discuss it. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. Soon, they, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair, so the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and he would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead, But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Then, the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, 
Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that's why I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder, and others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, This voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little while longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because I saw Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Jesus said these things because he saw his glory, and Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogues, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into this world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Amen. In addition to John 12, we are going to also read Second Chronicles 26, Zechariah 9, and Revelation chapter 13.
Interestingly, even though Mark is a shorter book than John, Mark actually gives us a good bit more information and detail on this episode than John, except that he left Mary and Martha and Lazarus' name out of the narrative. However, it's expanded. So we learn this in Mark 14, 6, when the disciples, and it's more than just Judas, when the disciples are fussing out what Mary of Bethany did, Jesus says this, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what you what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So number one, that's fascinating. I don't know if that means for sure that Mary of Bethany knew what she was doing, that she was preparing Jesus for burial. I assume the disciples had their minds blown by that statement and certainly probably didn't understand it in the least. But that's a really fascinating statement that the Bible never unpacks at all. But we see that Judas and the other people, even other disciples, are grumbling about this situation, and it really offends them for a variety of reasons. But for Judas, it actually goes beyond that he was merely offended, because when we keep reading in Mark 14, we get to verse 10, which says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them, and when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let that sink in for a moment, because verse 10 is right after this incident. The straw that broke the camel's back for Judas, the thing that convinced him to take action and betray the king of kings, was apparently this incident and Jesus' response to it. Yes, I do know that Judas was already a thief at this point. He was taking things from the offering, so to speak, but he wasn't yet a betrayer until this. So why? Why did this action of Mary of Bethany and Jesus' response to it lead to the literally the worst act of betrayal in all of history? Uh, we should say Benedict Arnold is a Judas Iscariot rather than calling other traitors Benedict Arnolds. I mean, this is the worst act. I, I suppose, actually, we should call them Benedict Arnolds because calling any other act of betrayal a Judas Iscariot is, is silly and minimize it. So why did he do it? Why... Why did this act cause Judas of Iscariot to do this terrible thing? Well, we can speculate, right? We can only speculate because we're not given a motive. But we can ask some questions, I think. Was the motive money? Well, possibly. But do recall that Judas tossed that silver back after the death of Jesus. Sure, that could be regret on his part, of course. But it does seem an odd thing to do for somebody that is that possessed by the love of money. In this particular incident, I actually think the thing that got to Judas was something maybe along the lines of jealousy. Maybe it offended him and revealed his heart that Mary of Bethany was just so lovingly devoted to Jesus. Remember, every time she's around Jesus, she's always sitting at his feet, soaking in his words. It was probably clear to everybody amongst the disciples that she loved him deeply. And Judas knew that he wasn't that way. Judas knew that his love for his master wasn't nearly the, as strong as Mary of Bethany. So maybe it was something like jealousy that drove Judas in part to this despicable act. And then again, maybe it was something even more simple. Maybe it just made him mad that he got in trouble, so to speak, for speaking out against Mary. And Mary was praised greatly. 
Because remember what Jesus said at the end of this incident, that Mary's act would be proclaimed all over the world, just like the gospel. So here Judas is getting in trouble, and this woman, who's not even one of the 12 disciples, is being praised. I don't know, maybe that caused him to snap. But think about the sacrifice of Mary of Bethany. What she did, the jar of perfume that was poured out and used up, cost 300 denarii. Now, this was the equivalent of about one year's wages in the first century. That is 50 weeks of working, six days a week, and resting on a Sunday. That's an astounding amount of money. The equivalent of an average yearly salary, wherever you are. I mean, if you're in California, it's probably $45,000, $50,000. And uh, in some states, maybe a little less. Around the country, maybe a little less. But, you know, basically, the average equivalent of a year's salary is how much this perfume cost, and boom, it's poured out in a moment. Why this waste, grumbled some of the disciples in Judas, and Jesus says that, hey, what she's doing is the very opposite of waste. I see it, as mentioned before, that this act of Mary of Bethany as something like an investment, the best investment in all of history, seeing as how we are still today, almost 2,000 years after this investment, talking about the wonderful thing that was done by Mary of Bethany. Well, let's close with Spurgeon's words on this beautiful act. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. When you do the best you can from the purest motives and your Lord accepts your service, do not be surprised if others don't approve of your actions. There was never a more beautiful proof of the love of love to Christ than this anointing at Bethany, yet the disciples found fault with it. As they could not object to the action itself, they objected another thing would have been better than doing this. So there's a great deal of that kind of wisdom, says Spurgeon, in the world. But if we wait until we learn that kind of wisdom, we will never do anything for our Lord. If this devoted and enthusiastic woman had waited for the advice of these, quote, prudent people, she would neither have sold the ointment nor poured it out on Jesus. She did well to take counsel with her own loving heart and then to pour the precious oil on that dear head and those feet that was so soon to be crowned with thorns. She thus showed that at least one heart in the world thought nothing was too good for her Lord, and the best of the best ought to be given to him. May she have many imitators in every age until Jesus comes again. Wow, that's a great close. And I'll say it again. May she have many imitators in every age until Jesus comes again. We continue with Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. After Amaziah the king rested with his ancestors, Uzziah rebuilt Eloth and restored it to Judah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecolia. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God throughout the lifetime of Zechariah, the teacher of the fear of God. During the time that he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Uzziah went out to wage war against the Philistines, and he tore down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod. Then he built cities in the vicinity of Ashdod, and among the Philistines, God helped him against the Philistines, the Arabs that live in Gerbael, and the Mayanites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for God made him very powerful. 
Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, the valley gate, and the corner buttress, and he fortified them since he had many cattle both in the Judean foothills and the plain. He built towers in the desert and dug many wells. And since he was a lover of the soil, he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands. Uzziah had an army equipped for combat that went out to war by division according to their assignments as recorded by Jael, the court secretary, and Messiah, the officer under the authority of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The total number of family heads was 2,600 valiant warriors. Under their authority was an army of 307,500 equipped for combat, a powerful force to help the king against the enemy. Uzziah provided the entire army with shields, spears, helmets, armor, bows, and sling stones. He made skillfully designed devices in Jerusalem to shoot arrows and catapult large stones for use on the towers and on the corners. So his fame spread to even distant places, for he was wondrously helped until he became strong. But when he became strong, he grew arrogant, and it led to his own destruction. He acted unfaithfully against the Lord his God by going into the Lord's sanctuary to burn incense on the incense altar. The priest Azariah, along with eighty brave priests of the Lord, went in after him. They took their stand against King Uzziah and said, Uzziah, you have no right to offer incense to the Lord. Only the consecrated priests, the descendants of Aaron, have the right to offer incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have acted unfaithfully. You will not receive honor from the Lord God. Uzziah, with a fire pan in his hand to offer incense, was enraged. But when he became enraged with the priests in the presence of the priests in the Lord's temple besides the altar of incense, A skin disease broke out on his forehead. Then Azariah the chief priest and all the priests turned to him and saw that he was diseased on his forehead. They rushed him out of there. He himself also hurried to get out because the Lord had afflicted him. So King Uzziah was diseased to the time of his death. He lived in quarantine with a serious skin disease and was excluded from access to the Lord's temple while his son Jotham was over the king's household governing the people of the land. Now the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, wrote about the rest of the events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end. Uzziah rested with his ancestors, and he was buried with his ancestors in the burial ground of the king's cemetery, for they said he has a skin disease. His son Jotham became king in his place. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 1, a pronouncement. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place for the eyes of humanity and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And also against Hamath, which borders it, as well as Tyre and Sidon, though they are very shrewd, Tyre has built herself a fortress. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. Listen, the Lord will impoverish her and cast her wealth into the sea. She herself will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and will writhe in great pain, as will Ekron, for her hope will fail. There will cease to be a king in Gaza, and Ashkelon will become uninhabited. A mongrel people will live in Ashdod, and I will destroy the pride of the Philistines. I will remove the blood from their mouths and the abhorrent things from between their teeth. Then they too will become a remnant for our God, that they will become like a clan in Judah and Ekron like the Jebusites. I will encamp at my house as a guard against those who march back and forth, and no oppressor will march against them again, for now I have seen with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, 
The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece. I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrows will fly like lightning. The Lord God will sound the ram's horn and advance with the southern storms. The Lord of armies will defend them. They will consume and conquer with sling stones. They will drink and be rowdy as if with wine. They will be as full as the sprinkling basin, like those at the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will serve them on that day as the flock of his people, for they are like jewels in a crown sparkling over his land. How lovely and beautiful. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Revelation chapter 13 verse 1. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could speak, both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark the beast's name, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Well, my friends, if you're interested in that, I believe we have done an episode of the, on the mark of the beast, 666. Previously, all you got to do is go to BibleReadingPodcast.com and look that up. And... That's the end of the episode for the day. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he shine on you. May he carry you and give you peace. Jesse, we're praying for you. And friends, the Lord loves you and has sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins. And he offers you eternal life in him. Look to him and believe. Good day and Godspeed.